Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I'd like to talk about something that we probably all think about at one time or another, and it's certainly not about vanity, though it's maybe partially related to that. It's about dementia as a big topic. It's about Alzheimer's secondarily. Alzheimer's, as you know, is a subset of dementia, slightly special case. I'm not going to go into how they differentiate from each other. But what I'd like to cover and why I'd like to cover this is it's kind of more of a coincidence. I happen to be working with some people with their mother on this particular issue and seeing what we could do relative to low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet. That, in combination with today in the New York Times, today being Monday, uh, December 30th, and the article is, it's a heartbreaker, actually. And uh, the title is, is brace yourself for this, by the way. Sweethearts forever. Then came Alzheimer's, murder and suicide. They were absolutely soulmates. So I'll give you a, the skinny on that in a second, but you can find that article online. And I'll put a link to it in the link part of our podcast. But some of the comments that have come after this are pretty tender as well. So for instance, the first one, this is a tragic story. It goes on and talks about European countries, Switzerland and Netherlands and the right to die. That's not where I would have gone relative to this particular story. Another person said, I do not cry often after reading a New York Times article. I did this time. And this person had a lot of people agreeing with her. And what this was, was the gradual decline of the mother and the family. And these two had been married a long time and were each other's sweethearts. And he, it came to a point that it was just too much. But in the story, it showed about the decline of the forgetting things initially and not remembering how to then do something. Like for her, it was crocheting or certainly driving. And so her world became kind of constricted and then forgetting people's faces and so on. So that's pretty much a story that we've not heard specifically and not heard something as tragic as this may be, but we, in the back of our minds, almost regardless of age, certainly the 40s onward, we hear about this. Let me switch to 
a slightly more academic perspective. And that is from here, I went to, you know, what are the statistics in dementia? I know they're horrible, but um, basically the rates, let me just read this one from you. It says dementia statistics, and it's from Alzheimer's Disease International. So it goes, someone in the world develops dementia every three seconds. There were an estimated, we'll call it 50 million people living worldwide with dementia in 2015. This number will almost double every 20 years, reaching 75 million by 2030 and 131 million by 2050. Now, both of those dates, I think I'll be around for. So that's hard to believe. And there's a graph here basically saying the areas of fastest increase and total increase will be the poorer countries used to be called the third world. And so that would be Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia parts of Central Europe, and uh, and even Africa. And so it's huge. It's, it's, it's such an uncomfortable topic to talk about because if we don't know somebody who has Alzheimer's or dementia, we fear it in ourselves to some extent. Some people look up for the gene to see if they have the gene and therefore are they predisposed. I'm going to get to a positive point in all this, by the way. I'm just sort of layering some minor minor pieces of information I think it's important to have in this conversation so we don't just spout off on all this. So you have the rate of increase is huge. Um, it will increase a lot in the United States and in the West, but mostly in the lesser developed countries. And the cost of care, usually what that means is you pay for a caretaker or that somebody in the immediate family becomes the caretaker. So you're pulling them out of their own social network. You're pulling them out of their own financial economy. And so there's there's a tug. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just not an incidence of morbidity, as they say. It's connected to a lot. It's very family connected. So there's that setting. And I want to go to one other place to sort of set this, add to this story before I get into things that I'll add to, which I think will be helpful. And that is when we lived on Cape Cod for about five or six years and had visited it for many years before, lucky enough to know people there, is that I got to see a speaker. And this person's name was and is uh, Greg O'Brien. He used to be a reporter for the, uh, I think it was a Cape Cod the Cape Cod Times. Uh, anyways, we're one of the two papers that are out there. And he has a family history of Alzheimer's. And so he would, uh, he's a clever guy. And he would write, he had a book out before, it's called Dispatches from Pluto. And the Pluto that he was referring to then, besides this distant planet, was that he was so deep down in a story so far away that he was on Pluto, you know, to get this story and he'd bring it back to that paper. So he was on Dispatches from Pluto. Well, his use of the word Pluto changed as he's become older. He's now a man that looks to be in his mid-50s, perhaps 60s. And his Pluto now is really to be out there, kind of lost in space. So that kind of Pluto in terms of diminished mental capacity. So he writes from the perspective of, hey, here's my family history. I've seen it but it's also affecting me. I can tell you how it's affecting me. So he's sort of like, like the living proof. If you need to watch somebody gradually express the symptomology of dementia, 
more and more and more, and specifically in his case, it is Alzheimer's, he's the one. So he goes around and gives talks. So I saw his talk there and his talk was, it was pretty moving. I mean, when you, when you realize he's talking about himself and it's his situation in which he doesn't recognize his wife sometimes. He talked about Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell has since passed, but Glenn Campbell also had Alzheimer's. Um, Greg O'Brien would talk about some of the conversations he had with Glenn Campbell about some of these hallucinations of either, you know, bats in the rooms or bugs crawling down the walls. So it was pretty horrific to listen to this. And so I, I listened and everybody, of course, was, was a room full of very sympathetic, primarily older people, which I'm not part of that group. And I said, so have you thought about or looked into or heard of, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia as being a diabetes type three or type three diabetes? And he goes, no, I haven't. And I was sort of expressing it, but I got these cold stares from the rest of the room was don't talk about this. We're talking about this person's feelings and this person's experience. Don't make this into a, a medically academic conversation. So I, I felt, uh, actually, I thought I was going to have something to add, but I quickly sort of smiled and didn't say anything because that clearly was inappropriate by my perception at the time. So now I'm going to switch over to YouTube and give you two slices of what Greg O'Brien is working on now, which I do find fascinating. And I'll get back to my dementia, Alzheimer's type three diabetes and what you can do about it. And I think it's very important for you to pay attention to what you can do about it because you or somebody in your family are going to need you to pipe up about this. And I think there's plenty of things to address the diminished faculties of one's brain. Okay, so let me just pause for a second, get this lined up. We're getting tricky, I know. Okay, here we go. This is back from uh, May of 2015. I had a front row seat for my grandfather's death on Alzheimer's, and I was the family caregiver for my mother, and I was there when she died. And um, people have a misperception of, of the stereotypes of Alzheimer's. They think it's the end stage when you're in a hospital and, and uh, you're, um, you're two months away from dying. Um, there are millions of people walking around like me. You just saw the movie Still Alice, Alice Howland, uh, the fictional character, but, 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 but she's wholly accurate. Um, she's a professor at Harvard. And, um, and, and, and they're trying to struggle through life. In my case, 60% um, of my short-term memory can be gone in 30 seconds. There are times when I don't recognize familiar people, including my wife, on two occasions. There are times when I don't recognize where I am. I pick a phone up and I don't remember how to dial and get so angry I throw it across the room. Or in the summertime, should summer ever come again, uh, I pick my lawn sprinkler up and not know what it does. Or I go into tremendous rage. And then there, the, the, what people call the misperceptions, which are the hallucinations, seeing things that aren't there. And it's very difficult to talk about it because I decided uh, to strip myself naked. I was there with my mother when she died. And, and I said, you know what? This is going to stop. We're going to start talking about this in, 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 in more personal terms. Uh, as a journalist, um, I felt I had no choice. It was, you know, I've covered a lot of big stories in my life, and yet this was the biggest story uh, I may write about. Let me ask you about how you deal with those moments uh, of off-centeredness. That, that phrase doesn't do it justice, but the sort of moments you were talking about, uh, 
a minute ago. If you, say, pick up a phone and can't remember how to dial it, or if you happen to wake up next to your wife and for a moment you can't place her as your wife, how do you respond in the moment? You respond in the moment in anger because there's something inside you that tells you you should know better and you can't get at it. And, and you're angry because you should know better and you don't know what else to do but to strike out in rage. And sometimes you cry. And, 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 and it's a total loss of... I wanted to stop there on that. And because I want to... But I'm going to give you another piece of it as well. Here we go. This is what it's grown into. And I think it's, uh, it's an amazing perspective to have, as you say, he is talking about it in more personal terms as the victim of, and I use that word in quotes. Here's where he's turned it to. I'm Greg O'Brien. I'm still Alice without the dress. Five years ago, I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. After the disease stole my grandfather, my uncle, my mother, and now it's coming for me. Alzheimer's is like having a sliver of your brain shaved every day. It is a death in slow motion. In the movie Still Alice, Juliana Moore does an incredible job showing what it's like to live with Alzheimer's. She is worthy of an Oscar in her portrayal of the fictional Alice Howland, a Harvard professor dealing with Alzheimer's. But for millions of us with this disease, there is no script. The scene never ends. The pain and devastation never stops. But it doesn't have to be this way. Researchers say we can find a cure for Alzheimer's in a decade, but our government won't fund the necessary research. That won't change unless you stand up today. So, Okay, so now you know what he's up to. Um, I really appreciate his perspective. So now, instead of waiting for the government to go forward with this, which I think would be great if the government knew, if the government actually looked at this situation, this particular condition, call it dementia collectively, and said, we really have to come down and improve a plan here. It's not that they're not working on that, but I don't think they're taking it seriously. And I think there's many options out there that are simple enough to implement with tremendous tremendous benefits. Is it a reversal? I don't think so. But there, there are things that are available that one can do that have to do with low-carb, high-fat diet, of course. Okay. And that's not what's being approached here. And unfortunately, waiting for the government to do something and to make a movement for this, I think that obviously is something that has to happen concurrent with it in real time, with helping real people live their lives now. Otherwise, um, we're skipping a generation and hoping something will improve for the next generation. So what is all this and what can one do? There's plenty of resources out there. And I would suggest that you, in the very least, you could see the movie Still Alice, but um, that will just help you paint a more horrific picture of of a decline of a, of a woman, which is a decline of many people that have that same story. But uh, there's books out there on Alzheimer's now. You have what they call the Bresetin uh, Protocol, which is um, a doctor from UCLA that put together a protocol. It's it's not a lot of numbers of people have gone through there. Uh so it's, it's not a large population of people that he's reversed things with, and he has claimed reversal of a few. But there are great benefits there is what I'm saying. And so we're going to talk about some of those aspects. And uh, before the Bresenton protocol, quote unquote, uh, came out, and there's a number of studies, so you can look at that in PubMed or, or Google, uh, Dr. Dale Bresenton. And there was components 
about the ketogenic diet that are part of that, low carb, which are, are necessary. In fact, if you didn't do that, regardless of all the other things that are mentioned, you wouldn't get the benefits of any of those other things. So it has to be included. It's necessary, but not sufficient. But for some, it's an incredible change. So maybe it is sufficient for some, but for most, it's just a vital component. And I think Alzheimer's is, quote unquote, the canary in the mine shaft in the sense that this is what's happening and we can watch what's happening to a large volume of people, a hugely large volume of people, but it's a consequence of a high carb diet times a number of years, times a number of decades, and or times a number of generations. And so this is the kind of thing that has to be addressed. So carbs, however you want to look at it, high carb diet for as long period of time creates a lot of damage. We can pick five or six other conditions to say that carbs were a major contributor of inflammation, et cetera, et cetera, and then secondary causes and so on. But specifically on dementia, it is amazing. So what can you do? And let me sit, check over my notes here, try to put together some basic ideas, is that the thing that's really been developed over in the last five years, and I'm sure some of you already know this, we hear about ketones, just take ketones, just take, just take ketones. All right, let's talk about that. So there's a thing called exogenous ketones, and now there's two groups of exogenous ketones. One are called exogenous uh, salts. That is, you have uh, a powder you can take that is tastes very salty and doesn't taste great, and you can buy it on Amazon, buy it in a number of places. And then there's a thing called exogenous esters, so ketone esters. So now there's two different forms. Both are expensive. The exogenous uh, esters are, I don't know, $300 to $1,000 a month, and the ketones are about $300 a month. So the thing that is never talked about that is equally efficacious, it may not be equally usable in all situations because it's an oil, and that is caprylic acid triglyceride, otherwise known as C8 MCT oil. Yes, we have a product, basically just that oil for these reasons called C8 keto MCT oil. So why do people not talk about that? For one is C8 keto MCT oil, uh, caprylic acid triglyceride, these are not patentable products. These are merely oils that have come from, in this case, has come from a sustainable palm oil. Others, they can derive it from coconut oil. But the problem with coconut oil is that there's no such thing as sustainable coconut oil. It hasn't become so sophisticated yet. But anyway, it's an oil. It comes from a plant and it's a natural product. And because it's a natural product, it cannot be patented. And because it cannot be patented, there will not be a lot of research done on this particular molecule. This particular, it's more than a molecule, it's a plant. Oh, no, it actually is. It's a molecule. So it's specifically caprylic acid. C8 converts into ketones within 15 minutes. So it's pretty remarkable. And you can measure it in your bloods with a ketometer. And so we, oh, now it goes back about three years ago, that we did compare on ourselves, this is an N1, or actually an N of two, to see uh, to what degree could you increase your ketones and, to, and how fast could you do that. I didn't see that, that the salts were any faster than the oils. And so you would never just take oil straight in a smaller amount, you could, uh, but you don't need a lot. And 
before I even go into that whole aspect, there is one person, Dr. Stephen Conane, who I did a long uh, interview with over a, a couple a couple podcasts on his work with C8. And it's remarkable that he's chosen to look into this. And I remember talking to him at the first metabolic therapy conference, oh, five years ago or so, and uh, University of South Florida at Tampa. He and Dr. Mary Newport, and I'll get to her in a second, that he had done a poster uh, presentation. So it's out in the hall, a poster presentation of comparing different medium chain triglycerides. So that's C8, C10, C12, and their speed at uh, converting into beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's one of three ketones. Well, the oil, which is carbolic acid, converts into all three ketones, acetone, acetoacetobutyrate, and um, beta-hydroxybutyrate. So there's three different ketone bodies that are kicked off because of this, and each have their own functions. Whereas a ketone salt, an ester, is specifically beta-hydroxybutyrate. That is what is created. The other two are not created. So that's one difference. The other difference is obviously the cost. So the C8 has become, it's a very unsophisticated product. It's just oil. And so that's all there is, just oil. And you have it in a bottle and you have it on your counter. You also can get it as a powdered, but a powdered has to be mixed with a binder and the binder is a carbohydrate. So you actually are getting carbs when you're taking a powdered version of C8. However, you are getting C8, which is directly converted into ketones. So the key thing here in this specific uh, setting condition, disorder of dementia is ketones specifically. Ordinarily, I would talk more about low-carb, high-fat diet to create ketones and all the wonderful things that that does to you know, change your body over time. But specifically, what has happened in the brain who've the brain of all of us actually nowadays, but in a brain that has been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, mild, mild cognitive impairment is the threshold of entering into full-on dementia, full-on Alzheimer's down the road. So, But what has happened is that your brain, nearly completely, and I'm not going to go into what parts, but call about 90% of your brain, prefers to use fat as a fuel. It prefers to use ketones as a fuel. So if you now know that, and you can now make ketones, now you have three different types. You can use the salts, you can use the esters, you can even use C8 in your food and on your food to create ketones for you. Suddenly you can go straight to that part of the brain and give it what it needs. Well, why is there a dementia in the first place? What is the shutting down that happens? Well, it comes from as I said before, it comes from decades of or generations of having a high carb diet. We might not have considered it a high carb, but by comparisons of today, two and three and 400 grams of carbs per day for a person's diet is huge. So what happens, so much carb gets obviously converted to glucose is that it becomes too much. And so what happens, your receptors to use glucose tend to shut down, either become damaged or become fewer. And there's a number of compensatory mechanisms that take place to basically mean that there's fewer and fewer receptors to bring in this overwhelming amount of glucose because there is such an overwhelming amount of glucose in the brain to use. So consequently, this shutting down fewer and fewer receptors begins your cognitive impairment. And so they actually have, let me just finish this thought, whereas fat, so 
in order for you to, you know, get enough glucose, which is not the preferred fuel for the brain, you really start have to ramp up to even higher levels of glucose, which will even drop down your glucose receptors even more. So you wouldn't do that, but that was a way you'd, you'd get through and say, okay, I, I, I have some thinking again, so to say. I have some abilities momentarily that you didn't have or that person didn't have. The other way you can do it is basically by creating ketones, concentration in your blood that goes into your brain and you keep that concentration kind of like a tide that rises. So if you can keep that concentration of ketones at a certain level or higher, and these numbers are pretty much ascertained. So it's by concentration of ketones determines its push. It's kind of a push factor into the brain, whereas glucose is actually pulled into the brain, another slight difference. So having a percentage of ketones in your bloodstream all the time, ideally, will restore. It's another way of turning on the brain. It's restoring function. So in one way, we're not really restoring function. We're actually hooking up a different fuel, the preferred fuel that you are born in having, where you were born in ketosis, by the way, and breast milk was ketotic, was ketogenic, I should say. And so you you basically are creating, you're turning on those lights with a different fuel. That's really all that's happening. So the restoration of function isn't so much a measure of you're changing something that didn't exist before, you're simply providing a different source of electricity for using that metaphor. Pretty cool, huh? So however you get to the ketones, for this particular situation, it really is a ketone story. So when I get to listening to Greg O'Brien talk about this, and this is certainly what I would have brought up in that particular room, but I, I was a bit conflicted whether he wanted to draw attention to himself and his plight because there's some money behind this, his book, and so on and so forth, or not. Um, I didn't get a sense... And I often get this in a lot of medical conditions. People don't want to improve because if you take their medical condition away from them, you take their identity away from them. And therefore, their motivation to make a change is very low. And that's an odd thing. To th you think everybody would want to be healthier and live brighter and cleaner for as long as they possibly could. And they often say that they can. But here we have an example of, no, we're going to wait for the government to get behind some particular patent a pill and it's going to come around. But no, the thing that you can take from your hand to your mouth to your brain, we're not going to do that. So I don't mean to be so critical of this perspective. I think it's excellent. He's making this story so personal. So we'll hear that. But there are plenty of things you can do. And it's like, I wish other conditions were this easily improved. You know, you can't that easily improve a lot of other conditions, a lot of other painful conditions. You can long term, but you can't immediately. And so I think it's a small miracle. So I think that C8, whether it's our, our product or another product, and I do believe ours is the highest purity, et cetera, et cetera, and it's you know, from sustainable palm oil, you need to use that personally. If this is you we're talking about, you need to give it to whoever it is that you're working with. You need to work it into their food. Don't be using it as a drink because too much oil, whether it's olive oil or avocado oil or caprylic acid triglyceride, is going to have your stomach feel kind of uh, burned for a bit. You'll feel kind of crampy. So you got to keep it at a reasonable dose. Now enter Dr. Stephen Kendane again, and there's a, pl a plenty of links in the link section of this particular podcast. And you'll find there's a number of presentations he's given that really he just used two tablespoons, that is 30 grams of caprylic acid triglyceride per day 
to see these improvements. And you can go into what kind of improvements are there. It's I think it's pretty miraculous. So the measurement of some takeaways, and I'm jumping around to cover all this, is that some of the takeaways are mild cognitive impairment happens at a fairly young age. We couldn't always measure it, but now we can measure it. So even into the early 20s, we're finding, this is per Dr. Cunane and now others, we're finding impaired cerebral impairment due to, uh, with MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And so they can be treated, but it has caused, come to those people, yes, because they might've had a predisposition, but a predisposition combined with a high carb diet. If these people with a predisposition, now we're speaking of ApoE44, Cinnalin, and a few other genes, don't get too overwhelmed. It's not that big of a deal, really. If they did not have a high carb diet, they had a low carb diet and high fat diet, ideally one that's it's producing ketones anyway, that they would not have these predispositions. So the predisposition is really a cause, cause from high carb diet, a secondary cause from the diet, as many things are secondary cause from a high carb diet. So, okay, so you make that change, you're well on your way to now restoring brain function. So as people get older, that measurement of CMI, mild cognitive impairment, is more and more noticeable, more and more measurable, and it's measurable on PET scans. And now uh, keto PET scans, they can measure the keto, keto, they can measure the ketone uptake versus the glucose uptake. That's pretty remarkable. Seems like yesterday's luxuries, which is, this is a very recent thing to have a, a, a ketone PET scan that is less than three years old, I believe. And uh, certainly they have it up at uh, Sherbrooke University in Quebec, where Dr. Conan works and a few other universities, but not many. So it's unique to be able to see that. So before that, it was just PET scans and PET scans, which is, you know, watching these tracers and what, where glucose is being taken up in the brain gives you a a read of cerebral activity. Really interesting to see this. So what we see with Alzheimer's brains is a diminished glucose activity. Why do we have a diminished glucose activity? Just told you, we have fewer and fewer receptors because we had a history of a high carb diet that drove those receptors down. So that's now a poor place to put your fuel, so to say, for the brain. And we, when you can see that the ketone uptake, like the keto PET scan, we can see that that function has not changed over time. Isn't that impressive? So this is clearly a tool that I could perseverate over and say again and again and again that this is that important to do. So if you are stepping out and you just hear this podcast and you go do it yourself, don't drink, don't take this bottle and guzzle it and expect immediate change. That's being an idiot. It really is being an idiot. Use a little prudency. Put it in the context of your food. So what I do, uh, we don't have really a history of dementia. My my mother, uh, who died at 93, didn't recognize me in the end, but recognized the rest of the family uh, for the most part. Um, I believe that her dementia came from her bleeds, heavy bleeds that you would have from her falls when she was on blood thinners. And so I don't have a great feeling about blood thinners because of uh, the dementia they can induce in older population. Anyways, there's that story. Um, I didn't know enough about ketones at the time, that perhaps it would have been a whole different thing back then. And that was in uh, 2011, 2012, I believe. It's not that long ago. So this is a take-home actionable item you can have. And I wouldn't have uh, more than a teaspoon or a tablespoon 
tablespoon would be hard to start with, but put it into, we make mayo. So we put our C8 in with eggs and salt and vinegar, and we put a little um, collagen in there and blend it up with an emergent blender. And we go through a couple of jars, mason jars of mayo. So that's one source of, of contextualized caprylic acid, C8 keto MCT oil. I also pour it on my meat or my fish or my chicken. I, I add that in. Uh, maybe once in a day, and I'm, I'm doing this less and less, I put a little bit of my coffee and I mix that with collagen. That's become kind of a trendy thing to do. But we didn't do it because it was trendy, by the way. We did it because it was convenient. Not, you know, it's basically a alternative to dairy. And uh, it really helps you sustain through the day. If you have a project to work on and you have just a little bit, I'm talking about a, a teaspoon and some collagen mixed in with your coffee or tea that will keep you going fairly, fairly focused for a long period of time. Pretty amazing. So and if I was a college student, apart from the whole CMI aspect, I would take this leading up to exams. This gives you what's something I could say that sounds a little, little exaggerated, brain numbing focus on what you need to do for hours. And that's exactly what you need to do, what I needed to do when I was in uh, studying for the finals and in med school. So it's a big leg up there. So it's an easy thing to do. You have an answer, something you can do. Let's see what else I have here. The one thing that I, now I'm speaking more generally and using the high fat, low carb diet, ketogenic diet with elderly is that, you know, we can't just come to dementia as a one cause. I just kind of gave you a cause of dementia, which was the whole downregulation of the glucose receptors in the brain. But you also have to take a reasonable approach, you know, get some good blood work, blood work about this person and make sure they're not anemic. Make sure that they're they're not uh, vitamin deficient. And how would you, how would you understand how to do that? There's a company out there. There's a couple of companies out there. The one I use is SpectraCell. Send off your blood, have it come back. And it's an intracellular um, measurement of nutrients. I've been doing that for the last, you know, last 20 years. I like doing that. But the concern, so the concern is you rule out these other contributing factors. Okay. So check that off. And uh, you checked off the C8 aspect. The other thing I would look at that doesn't contribute so much to dementia and Alzheimer's, but it contributes to making the ketogenic diet problematic to implement for older people. And that is potassium, sodium, and magnesium. When you drop your carbs, you drop your kidney's ability to absorb sodium and magnesium, uh, so, all of them actually, but mostly sodium and potassium and somewhat magnesium. So you need to supplement these things. So we add salt to our coffees and, and, and I've never been a salt person before, but having done that for now a couple of years, at least a couple of years, if not four or five years, I would recommend to people that are the caretakers of people who have Alzheimer's and want to go down this road is, yeah, you can use the salt and it's really hard to oversalt your food. And I know that's contrary to what you've heard about other doctors. Oh, I shouldn't use salt because I have high blood pressure. Well, change your diet first. Your blood pressure will fall as you become a low carb and high fat. So that will be removed and then start bringing in your salt, but also work with somebody as you make through this transition. A magnesium is the other. And so if you didn't have these things, so what I'm saying is that what I lead up to now is I tell people to take a supplement. Uh, usually it's electrolytes, which is the potassium and the magnesium, uh, potassium and the sodium, 
and then they'll have a magnesium supplement. So in addition to putting salt on their food, if they want to, or in their drinks, if they want to, that is great to have an electrolyte supplement. And I don't mean an electrolyte drink because most of the drinks that are out there have sugar in them. So as much as they're about electrolytes, they also put sugar. So I, that's why I said supplements. So until a better supplement drink comes out, just until, right, just do supplements. So those would be the things that I would also look at. So look at the magnesium and the sodium and the potassium. What you'll find is with older people, they'll cramp up. They'll, um, they'll get their toe cramps, their foot cramps, their calf cramps, and eventually their thigh cramps, which usually will happen at night. And here you go. You can take care of that. Sodium and potassium, we're worried about that cramps as well, but we're also worried about heart issues. So take care of those things. Easy to take care of. You have the oil. You're going to do your basic blood work just to remove the other obvious things out there. So if you're on a ketogenic diet and you're doing all these things we've been talking about, but you didn't do anybody's blood work and they were anemic, that's not going to change anything. So anemia is anemia and you got to check into it. And it does happen a lot with the elderly. The other thing I... Um, doesn't have directly to do with dementia in older people, but um, muscle mass loss, protein, we need more protein than than has been advertised, has been recommended. And now you'll hear a number of, or see a number of references encouraging older people to have more protein. And I 100% believe that. And certainly working out. And if when one works out, you know about my high intensity training, I do it. Uh, and I like Dr. Ben way of doing it. He's pretty much the one who brought it to the world in my view. So these things are important. So wherever you start and the easiest place to start is getting some of the oil into your diet or somebody else's diet that you care about, but bringing in these other aspects, bringing in the cardiovascular to an extent, walk around the block if they are not walking around the block, but really you have to consider doing high intensity exercise, which is weight resistance, whether it's by rubber bands, or you're actually going to the gym. So the gym that I go to, I actually see people in their 70s and 80s and maybe even 90s. I don't know how old everybody is uh, in the gyms working with weights. And that's a that's impressive. And it's not the weight that they lift or bend or pick up or whatever. It's the slowness of doing the exercise that creates the intensity. So it's the intensity and not the external weight that you're working with. Hence, rubber bands do just fine. So I'm going to close on that, that you, you have a handle on some things that you can do are actionable. I hope you work with somebody who's trained to do this. It's not that sophisticated. You know, you can go deep on all the things a person needs, but we're talking about what can you do as a caregiver or as, your, as yourself being preemptive, preventative for dementia. And so that's quite an easy list, I'd say. Unlike other conditions, it's not, it's not that sophisticated. It's not that complicated. But you got to start and you got to track. So the most difficult thing with a ketogenic diet, I would say, and this is now from working with people, it's having people actually keep track of what they eat. They don't want to do that. They're like, they're like little babies. I don't want to do that. You know, you just tell me what to do. I'll do that. I don't know what they do. So when people work with me, they have to track their foods for a couple of months. We give them an app to do that. And I watch them. So that has to happen. They need to get that part down. They can't just, you know, walk around it and do all the easy things like drink more oil, C8. That's, that's not going to help them that much. You know, it's going to help them some for sure, but it's not going to replace the need to drop their carbs. 
Okay, till next time. I hope this has been interesting to you. We brought another voice into the podcast and uh, learning to be a little more sophisticated in doing all this. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of... At least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you. Bye-bye.